0: This is a Jewish TV channel presentation. Welcome to Talking Point, where controversial subjects are brought into sharp focus. Conversations with JTVC show host, Laura Kessler, comes up next.
1: Welcome to Talking Point, I'm Laura Kessler. Throughout history, humanity has been arguing over what to consider fact versus fiction. We've seen those tensions play out in a never-ending struggle between religion versus the state, religions and states versus one another, both internally and externally, and also tensions between physical laws versus divine providence. Even after Nietzsche declared God is dead, atheists and non-atheists still found plenty to argue about. Industrial logic versus humanistic compassion Hard power versus soft power, and everything in between. As Pontius Pilate said, we all have truth. Are yours the same as mine? And as Winston Churchill said, history is written by the victors. But what constitutes truth in a post-fact VUCA world, where feelings reign supreme, and technology can be manipulated to make almost any reality seem, at least momentarily, real to the senses? Democracies allow for disagreement. Autocracies and theocracies do not. So what should we call the global phenomenon of group think when contemporary journalists and NGOs systemically indulge a false biased narrative they are sympathetic to and many sincerely believe? More importantly, how do we reverse it and tell the truth so it's actually heard? Sometimes you have to go back to the past to understand the present and prepare for the future. And sometimes you need a medievalist to help decipher what's happening under all the subterfuge of the 21st century contemporary anti-Semitism and the bias of journalists covering the Middle East conflict. Because ultimately, there is nothing new under the sun. Fortunately, we're in luck because my guest today can do all of the above and more. Richard Landis was a professor of history at Boston University, and is now an independent scholar in Jerusalem. He chairs the Council of Scholars at SPME, the Scholars for Peace in the Middle East, and was the 2020 Senior Research Fellow at ISGAP, the Institute for the Study of Global Antisemitism and Policy. Richard was trained as a medievalist at Princeton, where he earned both a master's and PhD, his early work focused on apocalyptic beliefs and millennial movements initially around the year 1000, but increasingly he began focusing on contemporary movements, especially global jihad and the feckless-enabling response to its challenge, beginning with the coverage of the Al-Aqsa Intifada in late 2000. He made a series of documentaries in 2005 and 6, titled According to Palestinian Sources, which document the extensive staging of footage and the impact of that fake broadcast as news by Western news media. However, Richard is perhaps most famous for coining the term Tallywood in 2003 while investigating the Muhammad al affair, and he maintains a blog critical of Western journalism called the Aegean Staples. He's the author of numerous books, including the Encyclopedia of Millennialism and Millennial Movement, And his latest book is, Can the Whole World Be Wrong?* Lethal Journalism, Anti-Semitism, and Global Jihad. And I'm really excited to have him here. Welcome, Richard. Thank you. I've never talked to a medievalist before. I bet that's a great conversation starter at cocktail parties. (laughs) All All right. So, Richard, our listeners come from all over. I wondered if you could begin by telling our listeners, about your own trajectory, how your Jewish identity was formed, and how it shaped your love of history, and ultimately, why medievalism? Huh.
2: Okay. Um, so I guess it goes back to my father, who was himself a historian. Zichron um, Olivracha, his 10th uh, yard site, is coming up in August. Um Yeah, and he was a historian of the modern period, and uh, his question, the one that I grew up with, was why the West? Why was the West able to generate this uh, technologically sophisticated, productive uh, culture when no other culture came anywhere near it? And in fact, uh, certainly up until the late 20th century very few cultures were able to even imitate it with a blueprint much less generate that blueprint Um, and the second aspect of uh, my father's historical interest is that we used to go to shul every Shabbos and while we were reading the Torah in between with the Aliyot and stuff um, he and I would discuss the passages and he had a very historical take on it so I learned uh, not only to think historically, but to read religious texts historically. Um, And then why the Middle Ages? Because, um, well, in 1968, 69, I was on a trip with an organization called the International Honors Program. And we went around the world and spent a month in seven different countries and studied modernization some of them were developed like japan and sweden some of them were underdeveloped like china and and india and some were in the process of development like uh, israel yugoslavia um where else israel yugoslavia turkey uh and so on and so i you know it was quite a an experience for me but in in um in India, we were lectured by a very famous Indian historian, Ramala Tapar. And she was explaining to us why she thought that India wasn't at the forefront of development. She said, look, you know, for the for the Indians, we believe in reincarnation. And, you know, if you're reborn poor and miserable it's because of how you behaved in your previous life. So essentially for us, the world as it is with all its seeming injustices is in fact just. Um, So there's nothing to change. And I thought that's the exact opposite of the messianic notion that drives both uh, Judaism and Christianity and in fact Islam. Uh, Although at the time Islam wasn't really on my screen um the the apocalyptic notion the messianic notion that you know this world is upside down not the way it should be not just we have to work to make it more just and in particular at some point in the future everything will be reversed and you know the last will be first and and the first will be last and there will be true justice and peace and and uh, and plenty in the world So um, I began to think that that the key to the sort of different mentality of the West was this sort of active messianism in which we bring about the messianic age. Uh, We always fail, but that doesn't mean one of the basic principles of apocalyptic uh, dynamics is that uh, uh, mistaken does not mean inconsequential. Um, so, for instance, the American and the French revolutions, I think, were were efforts to sort of bring in the new age, um, and they failed, uh, but that doesn't mean that they didn't make fundamental changes in the lives of people and the society that they occurred in. So, you know, that took me back into the Middle Ages, and in particular to the turn of the millennium the year thousand uh which it seemed to me just looking at how much more dynamic european society was in the 11th century than it was in the 10th um that something had to have happened around the year thousand when i got involved it turned out historians all said no this is nonsense they didn't even know what year it was and so on Um, but that's a whole different story i mean i think they're wrong But that's a different story. That's not for us to
0: discuss.
1: So it really seems like there's this constant tension between either a society believes in self-agency and that people have power over themselves and self-determination or there is just a fatalist view that there's nothing you can control. So why bother? Is is it usually been historically one or the other?
0: Well,
2: you know, I mean, I think that uh, all of us in our lives uh, tend to uh, waver between the two or oscillate, um, you know, the expression, the, the wisdom, you know, give me the wisdom to know what I can change and what I can't. So, uh, but I do think that, yes, there is, uh, there is, and, and in Islam, for example, there's a pretty strong passive uh, dimension but also an apocalyptic expectation. I mean, um, if you take uh, one of the big distinctions in apocalyptic expectation is what I call active and passive. Passive is I'm waiting for God to do it or for a comet to wipe out the earth or whatever, but I have no agency. At most, what I can do is I can make my, you know, do penitence and hope that if there's a last judgment, God's gonna be favorable to me. But to actually bring about a change, no. Whereas uh, there's an active form, and it tends to be characteristic of what we historians call either millenarianism or millennialism, which is a belief that the the perfect the collective salvation will not happen in heaven with the the bad guys going to hell. Uh, salvation will happen here on Earth. And it will be collective salvation. Swords into ploughshares, spears into pruning hooks, and um, you know everybody will live uh, peacefully and enjoy the fruits of their labor, un un unharried by people with swords and and uh, spears. So, and that that's the kind of stuff that I think. Increasingly, over the course of the last millennium, apocalyptic expectation in the West became more and more active. And I think the, the first major turning point in that, not that there wasn't stuff before, but a, a sort of cross-the-boards mutation, I think, took place around the turn of the millennium, the first millennium
1: this makes me think of the whole y2k fiasco and everybody panicking that computers would stop and you know right. m- miraculously they they didn't and kept going why do you think the turn of the millennium is it just superstition is it is it just silly human fears that change i mean what's the big deal about changing a millennium that that you think uh, affects people so deeply
2: well um the first millennium, there was a huge build-up to it. Um, you know, there's a passage in the book of revelation about how Satan will be bound for a thousand years and then released at the end of that thousand years. There was also a tradition of counting 6,000 years from the creation. Um, and in with the year 6,000 will come the sabbatical millennium, the thousand years in which Satan will be bound. Um, And the first time that came for Christians was in 500, and the second time it came was 801, when Charlemagne was crowned emperor, Um, and then the year 1000. So there had been a sort of constant, literally over a thousand years, and that's the book I'm working on now, um, for literally a thousand years, Christians were waiting for Jesus to come back, and one of the main focuses of their expectation was at the end of the millennium so when the year thousand comes around uh that's big and it's big for theological reasons it's big for psychological reasons and so on now why 2000 had the impact that it had i think that's more of a kind of uh look you know we we <laughs> Literally, every 10 years, we look back over the last 10 years, every year we look back, every 50 years, Israel's about to celebrate its 75th, its jubilee anniversary, or Mm -hmm. whatever. Um, And so every 100 years is a big deal, and in Islam in particular, there's actually a term for the kind of renewal that takes place uh, at the end of uh, every century, and certainly when you get to the end of a thousand years, that's big, that's big. So um, I think, I mm-hmm. actually think it's unfortunate that the attitude <laughs> is to say, oh, it's just superstition. I think we should make millennial moments, um, that is chronological millennial moments, I think we should make them something that we think about, and something that we look back on. Christianity in 2033, will Christians will have been waiting for Jesus to come back for 2,000 years. It was, according to Christian historians, he was crucified in 33. Um, And so in 2033, it will be 2,000 years that Christians have been waiting for him to come back. And, uh, you know, I think it's entirely appropriate even... A good idea for Christians to think about what that means and how they behaved in the past when they were disappointed. Um, one of the ways that they've behaved in the past is to take it out on the Jews, to, to blame them for Jesus not coming back. So, yeah. I mean, the other thing is that, you know, look, apocalyptic expectation, as in Islam with the end of the did the hundred the year period. Um, it really excites people. There, there was a book written that was basically a, a, a re- refutation of my work, and the subtitle of it was that title was The False Terrors of the Year 1000. Uh, it's in French, so if people look it up, they're not going to find it by looking for that title, but The False Terrors of the Year 1000, colon, um, End of the World or Deepening of the Faith, which is just basically a false question when you think it's the end of the world, you deepen your faith. When you think that you're about to stand in judgment before an omniscient and omnipotent God, uh, you're bound to be more serious about your faith than you are under normal circumstances. So, you know, it's not that these things are bad. They can get bad. I think the Nazis are an example. I think global jihad is another example of possibly the most destructive belief ever which is active cataclysmic that is the belief that not only must there be a huge level of destruction cataclysm in order to sweep away the evil and clear the way for the good but we are God's agents in bringing that about Um, and that's you know when people say uh, you know, religion's killed more people than anybody. Well, actually, by and large, what's killed most people in terms of religion is um, this kind of active cataclysmic belief that I'm bringing on the Messianic age by wiping out my mm-hmm.
0: enemies.
1: Right. And, you know, I mean, even even if one doesn't believe in all of this, I think uh-huh. it's still relevant because you... Because if only because you know there are going to be people in society who do believe in it and are going to be motivated or stirred up to, you know, possibly act a little different. I know some uh, religious Jews that really believe in Bible prophecies. Do you ever uh, research any of that? Is there anything Judaism says about millennialism?
2: Oh, sure. I mean, uh, you know, just the other day I was walking out of my building and I met a neighbor and we were walking along and he started telling me that, you know, the Messianic days are coming. Uh, Look, I live in Jerusalem. It's a city known for what's called Jerusalem syndrome, which is people come here and all of a sudden have this experience and think they're John the Baptist or... Or, or Jesus or, you know, the Messiah or whatever. So, um, yeah, no, Jews, I would say the big difference between historically, I, I can't really say today because it's, it's very hard to judge your own time and to know what's going on. But historically speaking, I would say over the last 2,000 years, the big difference between Christians and Jews is that um, Jews have a, Pretty serious firewall between apocalyptic talk and action. In other words, it, there doesn't, there are, there are not too many cases where you literally have what I call an apocalyptic moment, where people actually think it's now. Tzvi is probably the most famous case, and there are other cases, but by and large, those don't happen with nearly the same frequency as they do in Christianity. On the other hand, I think both communities engage in an enormous amount of apocalyptic, messianic uh, speculation discourse. It's just, you know, most of the time it's all at a low murmur. And then when really weird stuff begins to happen, it picks up. And at certain points, it literally breaks out into a movement, um, as I said, less often in Judaism than in Christianity.
1: It, it's fascinating. You know, I think to a lot of people, millennialism means, you know, they think of millennials, people in their 30s. It's it's a new right. term for the average person. Right. Um, so you're, right. you're you're introducing our audience to a lot today. Um, right. So, so it's you know,
2: probably better to use the term millenarianism than millennialism.
1: Sure. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I get I get
2: yeah, I get I get emails from students pretty regularly saying, I want to do a paper on millennials, can you
0: help me? <laughs> I said no. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry.
1: You probably get CEOs trying to understand their employees better. <laughs> right. Um well, let's talk about another word you're an expert on, um Pallywood. Okay. Our our listeners come from all over the world. They're from different faiths, different knowledge levels about Israel. Right. So can you explain to a layman what the word Paliwood is and why you coined the term?
2: Right. Well actually let me let me tell the story of why I coined the term. Um at the at the beginning of the Antifada, um that's the one in two thousand, which I call the Oslo Jihad. Um but is generally referred to either as the Second Antifada or the Al-Aqsa Antifada, right at the beginning. So on Thursday, Sharon visits the Temple Mount. On Friday, there are riots. And on Friday evening, a news story hits the papers with footage from a Palestinian cameraman uh, claiming that the Israelis fired on a... A boy who was hiding, cowering behind a barrel in an exchange of fire between the Israelis and the Palestinians and the Israelis targeted him, shot at him for 20 minutes, and killed him in cold blood in his father's arms. That was certainly the claim of the the cameraman. The journalist, Charles Anderlin, who was Israeli, uh, uh, French-Jewish, olé, immigrant to Israel, and had been in the army, uh, reported it as um, he was the target of fire. So at least the deliberation of killing the, the child was in there. And this, was, this had an absolutely spectacular impact, um, both on the Muslim world, where it was literally a, a call to jihad, and, and bin Laden came out with a, a movie um, recruiting for global jihad um, shortly thereafter, maybe a couple of months after, in which this footage played a key role. Um, but in the West, it also had a massive impact because it basically, there was a French journalist who shortly after it appeared said this picture erases, replaces the picture of the boy in the Warsaw Ghetto. So, you know, here's a picture of a boy who allegedly has been shot. Um, in a crossfire, um, and that picture is supposed to replace a picture that symbolizes the deliberate murder of over a million children uh, by the Nazis. You know, it's it's a level of disorientation that's incredible, and and essentially what it did was it opened the path for what we we now run across all the time which is this notion that somehow the israelis are the new nazis and the palestinians are the new jews the new victims of this genocidal Mm -hmm. maniacal country that wants to wipe them all out um so so
1: holocaust inversion yeah yes
2: right so um james fallows writes an article in atlantic in the atlantic in which he went to Israel and looked at the footage carefully with somebody who was investigating it, uh, Nachum Shachaf, and um, he basically concluded that the Israelis did not kill him. Given the angle of the bullets, given the, what's going on, uh, the Israelis were not the ones who killed him, but he wouldn't go anywhere near the next step, which is who did kill him. But what I got from the article, and it was really interesting because he didn't buy it, but at least he gave the arguments that uh, this guy Shachaf was making, which is that it was staged. Um, And Shachaf had other footage from a Reuters cameraman, also a Palestinian, uh, in which there's extensive fakes. Basically, it's like a staged scene where people are, you you got cameramen you got directors you got you got uh extras you have makeup you and 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 you have these scenes of firing and then injury and then you throw them into an ambulance and the ambulance goes off with its sirens and so on and so it looks like the Palestinians are the victims and then I had the chance I saw that footage I went to Israel I met with this guy I looked at the footage Um, I, I was convinced that it was staged, but I didn't, it it wasn't until I saw the footage of the cameraman who actually took the footage of this boy, Muhammad Aduva being shot, that, uh, (laughs) I was just stunned because there I am sitting, looking at it with Charles Andela, who is the journalist who reported this story and who had full faith in, um, in, uh, this cameraman, and we're looking at it, and it's all fake. And I said to him, I I don't understand all this, you know, either people are just standing around in front of the Israelis, not afraid of anything, and throwing, you know, rocks at uh, the Israeli position, or they're actually staging stuff. And all of the action looks staged. And he said, yeah, they do that all the time. It's a cultural thing. And I was blown away. A cultural thing? Yeah, so what we're talking about is a classic case of what Saeed would call Orientalism. Uh, I mean, it was like, yeah, and he said, look, you know, I was in Egypt at one point, there was an earthquake or something, and people are going around with barely injured, but they're making a big deal of it and so on. So they just do this all the time. And I said, well, if they do it all the time, how do you know they didn't do it with Hadoua? I said, no, they couldn't fool me. Well, they did fool him. But what? as I walked out of his office, I remember thinking, holy mackerel, I knew they faked it. I didn't realize that the Western media was willing to use this footage to illustrate their story of the victimization of the Palestinians, even though they know it's fake. And that's when I realized that it was an industry.
0: Yeah.
2: And that's when I came up with the term Palleng. And, and incidentally, wow. while, I was, while I was working on the Adula case, it was really quite striking. I mean, uh, I would say to people, look, there are five possibilities. The Israelis killed them on purpose. The Israelis killed them by accident. The Palestinians killed them by accident. The Cal- Palestinians killed them on purpose. And and I wouldn't give them the fifth option. And mm, I, maybe two people out of a hundred came up with staged. Nobody could imagine that this would be staged. And yet it looks pretty much to me like mm-hmm. it is. Anybody wants to come look at the evidence is a website. aldura a l d u r a h dot And I, I put up all the footage and the analysis there.
1: You mentioned Orientalism. Can you elaborate on that?
2: Well, <laughs> Edward Said wrote a book in 1978, 79 called Orientalism, in which he basically criticized the West for being racist about the East and, in particular, about the Arabs. And it was all, you know, sort of here, uh, Western academics will say things about the Arabs that they would never say, say about the blacks in America. Um, They're belligerent, they're driven by honor, shame, they, uh, they, for them, you know, they prefer war to peace. uh, You know, they they kill their daughters, etc, etc. So for him, this book was a sort of assault on the way the West. Saw uh, the Arab world, um, and it had an enormous impact, huge success, uh, and and in fact, I mean, I've written an article about this. I, I think it was it had a, a tremendous impact on our ability to understand what we were dealing with because essentially what he was saying is, don't you dare, other, the Arabs. Don't you dare say they're different from us. Well, it's a different culture, I, you know. As a medievalist, I know the past is f- a foreign territory, and so is the Arab world. It's not the, the 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 rules of the game, the kinds of things that move people are really significantly different. I mean, you know, there may be some people who kill their daughters because their daughters have humiliated them defied them whatever but there's no community in America where the pressure is on the parent to kill the child otherwise the rest of the community is not going to allow their children to marry the the children of the family that's been shamed by this girl's often alleged action so we are we're dealing with a different world Religion means something different there, and but instead we 're all committed to what I call liberal cognitive egocentrism, which is projecting our mentality onto other people and saying, for example, in the arab Israeli conflict, well, you know if the Palestinians are sending their kids out to blow themselves up among these Israeli kids. I can't imagine doing that unless I were desperate, so they must be terribly desperate, so basically, the West in the after the outbreak of the Intifada and the beginning of the suicide terror war um, basically took the behavior of the Palestinians as evidence of Israeli guilt because they couldn't imagine that in fact the Palestinians were being inspired by preachers who were calling on them to exterminate the Jews, which is something that not only do we have difficulty imagining, but our reporters wouldn't tell us.
1: Right. And this is where your, your work is so important, because if the source of the information and the motivation is wrong and you don't fix that, everything that comes after it really is tainted. And I know when I interviewed Naomi Friedman back in March, she talked about Edward Said too, and, and she was a right. student at the time and saw on, on, on the campus just how seismic his work was in yeah. really introducing Palestinian propaganda and mixed with a little Soviet-era anti-Semitism as well into American academia, which we're really feeling harsh, harsh effects now. And, you know, b- back to Pallywood for a second, because, I mean, I think the average person, they may not grasp Edward Said and all of this other stuff, but but they get the concept of, of Pallywood. It's this fake Palestinian Hollywood where they put on shows. I I knew that they did this. I knew that that it's commoditized. What's shocking to me that you're saying is that they knew all along uh, The, that, you know, the I, the French media, the other, yeah. especially European media yeah. knew yeah. all along. And I, and I just, I have to just mention my, there are Facebook groups, there are comedy sites that kind of celebrate making fun of Pollywood that it, cause they're just, it's so bad. It's it's like kind of kitschy. It is, it, it's, 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 it's amusing. My, my personal favorite is, um, Katherine Heigl from Grey's Anatomy, oh, if yeah, anybody right, watches right, that. Right. She, she, Yeah, she played the character Izzy, and uh, the French media, I thought it was a joke meme. I didn't think it was right. actually serious, but, it, you know, it, it just has her in her, in her medical uh, uniform uh, with her arms folded proudly, and then the caption just says, the French doctor helped uh, at the scene right. of the Palestinians. Right. And I'm like, wait, this, this is Izzy, you know, and <laughs> I mean... It, it, If you know the character, she could have probably done almost anything. So (laughs) I was like, oh, I missed that episode. But, um, you know, they were mocked widely, and they somehow disappeared that from their, uh, you know, website. (laughs) uh, Right. I mean, they've been caught. They've been caught, and nobody cares. Right. A, A, uh,
2: too few people care, and, and B, basically their thing is throw the spaghetti against the wall and see if it sticks. And if it doesn't stick, just find some more spaghetti to throw against the wall. So, uh, you know, there's no, we're not dealing. And again, this is a very different culture from the Israelis. Israelis are remarkably scrupulous about what they'll say. They take their time. They don't come out with statements right away. They, um, I can't tell you the number of times that I've wanted to claim something and I've been told, no, don't do that, you can't be sure, and so on. Now, to some extent, that's because the media will jump, jump all over any Israeli who lies. But it's the opposite with the Palestinians. Not only will the Palestinians make a profession of dissembling and faking and and lying, but the Western media almost never calls them on it so for example if you listen to the interview that npr gave to the palestinian journalist who took the picture of uh the aduba boy you know it's just it, it it never occurs to them to question this guy's credibility it's just all oh it must have been so painful it must have been so hard blah 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 and, and you know, already from the moment the footage was out, there were huge holes in the mismatch between the narrative and the evidence. And nobody wanted to touch it. And the Israelis
1: didn't want and to but, touch it. Yeah, the, the, the whole concept of the narrative is so huge because we're in such an era of... Right. People are told that storytelling is, is the best way to persuade, which, which is true. And how we see this here in America on college campuses is uh, all the time. For example, at UC Berkeley when they had the, the IRA debate, and I, I stayed up, I listened to all of it because they broadcast right. it. And, I mean, person after person was uh, speaking up and It wasn't about the anti-Semitism that the the Jewish students here in California were dealing with. It was all about, it wasn't about the facts of the anti-Semitism here. It was about the feelings of how they felt about people thousands of miles away. They didn't even know. um, And, you know, regardless if it's true or not, it's just forgetting. People are just blinded by the feelings. And I just think we've lost a way of looking at things logically anymore. And when you're having that emotional argument, it's very hard to win that type of argument because logic is not going to work. And
2: in fact, I would argue that the Muhammad Abdullah footage played a key role in making that the dominant mode of discourse. In other words, once that picture came out, the sort of – enormous outpouring of sympathy for this poor boy who was killed in his father's arms, innocent, waving his hand to, you know, to, to ask the Israelis not to shoot, don't shoot. And, and yet he shot down The the, on the one hand, the enormous empathy for this young man. And on the other hand, the enormous hostility to the Israelis
0: for doing
2: it made it virtually impossible to have a serious conversation. And, and, you know, one of the key moments after that, less than a year after that, was Durban. And Durban was a mm-hmm. conference where, you know, Abdul was, uh, as a medievalist, I say he was the patron saint of, of is Body was carried around in effigy. His father was flown in by Arafat on his private jet and told everybody how terrible it was. They had T shirts of him and so on. And, and, you know, as Bernard Lévy uh, wrote about this, and he said, you know, I still think of all those people who came to Durban from all around the world who were victims of real oppression. And they never got heard because all people could do was yell about Muhammad Abdullah and the fascist, Nazi Israelis. And and I think that you know mm-hmm. from that moment on, that's w- that's the moment at which the sort of um, Zionism is evil, uh, and anybody who defends Zionism is automatically you know, on the wrong side of history, first begins to take over the public sphere.
1: And how did Israel respond to that? How how, how would you say well, that PR has been, so to speak?
2: It was it was a disaster. Uh, and in fact, I remember when I taught this, I, I had a class in communications, and so I, I had a class. I had one one class dedicated to the Adullam affair, and one of the students said, you know. Look, it's all very convincing, but if it's true, why haven't the Israelis said anything? And the fact is that for the Israelis, it was like the third rail. It was just—it was an experience of near electrocution. Um, eh, Anderlin called up the. It was Rosh Hashanah evening, so he called up the. Dover um, Tzahel, the Army spokesman's unit, where he had been a soldier and said, look, I have this footage and let me give you some advice. Don't try and deny it because that'll just make it worse. Just, you know, apologize and duck. And that's what the Israelis did. And once they did wow. that, it was, and, and and when the counter evidence started to pour in, okay. they dismissed it. And, and papers like Haaretz were unbelievably vicious in their contempt for the Israelis and, and people like me who were trying to argue that this was a fake. Um, you know, we were accused of conspiracy theory. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, conspiracies happen, uh, especially when the media is only too willing to participate in them. So it was it, it was bad. Really? I remember at one point there was this very lovely elderly French couple who asked me to sit down with the then um, head of Dover-Zahal, uh for the Veil for the rest of the world, not for Israel itself, uh, for the foreign press. And, you know, they were carrying on about this. And and at one point she stopped them and she turned to me and she said, Wait a minute, do you think this was staged? I said, Yes. She said, Okay, that's the end of the conversation. I have nothing to say. So it was, you know, that. uh, the way I put it, I think I put it in the book, but I certainly put it at the time that I was working on it. It's like this this uh, um, uh, Emperor's New Clothes Proce- procession, except that instead of a foolish emperor, it's an icon of hatred. And Israel is in there holding up the train of this disgusting icon of hatred that's being paraded around in front of people, and uh, mm-hmm. it, it was a disaster. And and it's still a disaster in the sense that, look, you know, the Israelis, they're extremely good at defending themselves in the what we call the kinetic uh, battlefield, but they're not very good in the cognitive battlefield. And part of it is that, you know, the Palestinians have the sympathy of the journalists who think that they're siding with the weak and, you know, that these lies are weapons of the weak. So it's OK and that they're leveling the playing field since the Israelis have all the power in the military and stuff. But the fact mm-hmm. is that they don't every once in a while they wake up and say, holy mackerel, this has Scott hand. We have to do something. But, uh, you know it it's it has yet to really be taken seriously and systematically
1: well, and this this topic really pushes my button cuz <laughs> you know I've worked pre- I've I've previously worked in PR and crisis communications uh, and I to me I just I look at all of this and to me it's it's very simple that you have the nice guys finish last syndrome people thinking, well, well, for, uh, why anyone would be a pacifist after the Holocaust is beyond me. But, I mean, in, ba- in the rules of business, people understand if something's wrong, you have to refute it, otherwise people assume it's right. In the micro, I think Jews can be very assertive. But in the macro, you get a lot of this institutional cautiousness that you and many of my other guests have mentioned where they're told to sit down, but you know, roll it under the carpet. And right. what century has that ever worked? I mean, <laughs> you would know. <laughs> uh, I mean, I mean, it's uh, uh, when has that ever worked out? I don't, I don't think so. So I mean, I'm, I'm not, I'm not, you know, blaming. I'm not trying to blame everybody here, but I mean, there is to some extent you have to say, how have we showed up, and what can we do different? And and there's a lot of frustration. People say we don't want to hear yeah. about. The cherry tomato or how israel did ways and you know there's some right. wonderful things but but you have to call a lie a lie
0: um right
1: and, and and one of the
2: one of the real problems here is that um first of all it Jews even have trouble singing their own praises um but they have even more trouble accusing other people so when I was at uh, BU, um I would uh, I was the faculty advisor for Hillel, and I would say, look, you know, we're coming up to a um, uh, an apartheid week. Let's go out there and challenge what they're saying because everything that they're saying out there is not true. So let's go out and challenge it. They say, well, we don't want to. You know, that would mean that we'd have to say that they're wrong. And we'd rather do something like, you know, have an Israel day where we give out free hummus or something. So it's like, it's really hard for Jews to behave the way the Palestinians do, even though they'd be telling the truth.
1: Where do you think that comes from? Why do you think... I mean you Look, know, we, we, we come the, from the maccabees the, where where the where, we have warriors yeah, no, in our blood where, of, where did it go
2: at the at the end of the Amida prayer that we say three times a day, we say, and may my soul be silent to those who curse me i mean it's not it's not part of our constitution to vilify other people. We don't like it. I don't like it. I mean, you know, my wife, it's funny, I I finished the book, and I should be and I am to some extent working on, you know, getting getting it out and 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 cultivating connections so that I can be on podcasts and stuff. But you know, I'm, I'm doing my medieval history. And I so much prefer doing that to to basically chronicling how unbelievably badly both the Palestinians and more broadly the jihadis have been behaving in the 21st century and how appallingly Western leaders have been behaving in response. You know, I don't
1: like it. Yeah, I hear you. Well, let's talk about your most recent book, Can the Whole World Be Wrong?, Lethal Journalism, anti-Semitism and global jihad. And what are the main takeaways and why did you write it and also why the title of the book? So the title of
2: the book, initially the title of the book was for the, I've been working on it for more than a decade. Um, It's not easy to write a history of your own time. Um, So initially the working title throughout that period was uh, They're So Smart Because We're So Stupid. And it was based on (laughs) <laughs> Among other things, he had dualist stuff. I mean, people would say to me, oh, you know, the Palestinians, are so good at propaganda. And I'd say, no, they stink at propaganda. We're the imbeciles who take their, <laughs> their crap and, and turn it into news. So yeah. that was the beginning. But, you know, my daughter said to me, look, you're, you're not going to do well by insulting your reader. Um, So I was looking around for another title. I had about 100 different titles, none of which I really liked. But then I realized that, you know, there's this quote from Echada Am in 1892, during a period where the blood libel was circulating in Ukraine uh, at a very high level. And he wrote an essay called... um, uh, a bit of consolation. And in it, he says, look, you know, when, when we say to the Gentiles that we don't eat the blood of their kids, bake it into our masa and stuff, they say, can the whole world be wrong and the Jews be right? And then one of the key moments that I study in my book, chapter three is the alleged Jenny massacre. And <laughs> Um, and Kofi Annan, the then head of the UN, said in response to the Israeli claims that, you know, they weren't, uh, they, there wasn't a massacre and that they weren't going to leave Janine until the job was done, said, um, can the whole world be, ro- no, I don't think the whole world can be wrong and Israel be right. And so what I realized was, you know, actually says we should take some consolation in the fact that yes, the whole world can be wrong and the Jews can be right. Or in this case, the whole world can be wrong and Israel can be right. And by the whole world, I have it in quotes in the title. I mean the sort of the world of the journalists and the academics and the, and the thought leaders who think that they speak for, the whole world the leaders at the un the people mm-hmm. in the ngos and stuff they think that they are the whole world um anyway they're really uh, <laughs> um so that's what that's why i picked that title and basically the book is a study of what i call y2k mind to go back to the y2k problem um, it turns out it wasn't the computers that were the problem, it was the uh, Western mind trained by Edward Said. And so what happens in 2000 is that the first attack of jihadis on democracy is the Second Intifada, the global Jihad, the Oslo Jihad against Israel, and then the next year it's 9-11. Those are my two opening chapters. And, and essentially what, um, um, what I'm arguing is that the West's response to being attacked, which started with the way they processed the Arab-Israeli conflict, was to blame the West. So Y2 Game Mind boiled down to one sentence is, when jihadis attack a democracy, blame the democracy. So they first blamed Israel. Then they blamed the United States. And, you know, there were people who defended the United States, who were outraged and so on. But the voice that dominated over the subsequent years was uh, essentially the one that said, uh, you know, Noam Chomsky, America is a greater... um, a greater terrorist than bin Laden or, you know, uh, Obama's, uh, Reverend Wright, who said, you know, nine 11 was America's roosters coming home, America's karma coming home to roost. So yeah, there, and, and, and essentially that's what happened. So part of it is just, and that's what I think is really stupid. Um, It starts, as I say, with a misreading of the Israeli
0: uh, Arab
2: conflict. It's produced a generation of leaders in the West who are essentially doing the job of the jihadis. They're behaving, I don't know how many of your listeners are aware of this term, but um, there's a term in, in Arabic and in Islam called the vimi. Uh, and it's spelled D H I M M I, and it's basically the status of non-Muslims, particularly the people of the book, namely Jews and Christians, later Zoroastrians, and and um, and Hindus when they conquer further east. But it's basically the status of non-Muslims in a Muslim society, and it's a, it's a it's religious apartheid. They can't give testimony in court. They uh, can't bring uh, Muslim to court. Um, They can't build their synagogues and churches higher than Muslim uh, places of worship. They can't ride horses. They have to ride donkeys. They have to step in the gutter when they're passing the Muslim on the sidewalk and so on. So it's a sort of systematic subjection. And humiliation of the non-Muslim, um, and the leaders in these communities are very careful. I mean, the, the, the apologists say, "Oh, Vimy is a is a protected status," but they don't go into the details of what it's. What are you being protected from? You're being protected from Muslims who, if you in their eyes blaspheme. If you're too critical, if you are too uppity, if you are a rebel, they will kill you. And that's what happened to the Armenians, they were viewed as rebels, and they were exterminated. Um, So you've got this status and, and the leaders of the Vimy community, historically, were always very careful to make sure that the people in their community did not offend the Muslims, the authorities, and uh, any important people, and in some cases, you could even have a crowd that would get worked up. And if the leader was ill disposed, he could let them do what they want. So, um, so the job of well, it and, was, and
1: even if you go back to what some people will refer to as the golden age of right. Jewish and uh, Muslim relations, you know, which seems hard to believe now, but you know, we we did have a good period. We were still living as as dimmies under them, right. uh, under right. under that right. sense of religious apartheid. And if you if you we we've talked a little bit about how there is that internal socialization of not fighting back. And I really I think that gets internalized. I mean, if you flash forward to Europe and some people now call it the shtetl mentality, the shtetl, right. like. Anyone who's, who's seen Fiddler on the Roof, that the peasants, lived in the shtetl. That was a little village. And, and there are some that think that even when, when we got to America and were free, we were almost like a caged bird that even when the door is open, See, it was open doesn't leave the cage. Right, right. You right, know, so right. it's more, more comfortable in the cage. And, and, you know, and that really speaks to the contemporary phenomenon now where, you know you have some internal divisions within Jews especially within the diaspora and the re- relationship between America and Israel where there, right. there are some that want a very strong Jew featured in the in the Israeli soldier defending Israel and there are others that don't want that that shtetl men- mentality that you know just bringing it back to what you're right. saying is really a dimmy mentality that's that's not that's not a position of strength and survival
2: right it it isn't and uh, it, but i mean uh, let me finish the thought that I was working on because I want to talk about the leaders um I mean I think there are a lot of- re- reasons not to look for conflict um but um sometimes when you decide not to look for conflict you end up avoiding it too much and i think that's what happened in 2000 when when all these voices were suddenly demonizing israel in academia the the people who should have spoken up did not speak up and i was there i was 50 years old at the time and i, I was a witness to the 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 deafening silence of uh, of not just Jewish academics, but any liberal academic. So, but the point that I was making about the the leadership is that the leadership is committed to making sure that their community does not upset Muslims. And that's what's happened in the West. We have a leadership in the West, which screams Islamophobia any time you say something that might upset Muslims. And as a result, you have a situation where you literally cannot talk about the problems with Islam because you'll be accused of being an Islamophobe. And that literally means you could lose your job. It means you certainly will. If you're an academic, you're going to get shunned. You're not going to get invited to conferences. You're not going to get funding for the work you do, etc. So, um so I think that right now we're in terrible shape and there's a lot of money to be made by being a vimy leader in the 21st century. You know, There are whole centers of study that are funded by Saudi money and other money that are pumping out scholars, in quotes, who are basically doing apologies for Islam.
1: And I don't, I don't think they're hiring uh, modern people that have, uh, right. you know, ways that they want to revitalize anything. Right. You know, it's, it's definitely a certain ideology. Well, how did your training as a medievalist contribute to your understanding? Uh, what, what is it that a medievalist right. researcher can do to fact-check the Palestinian narrative <laughs> that modern journalists aren't right. doing?
2: <laughs> well, for one thing... I am not subject to liberal cognitive egocentrism. In other words, I'm studying people who are very different. I'm studying people for whom, um, the way I define an honor-shame culture is it's a culture in which it is expected, allowed, expected, even required that you shed blood for the sake of your honor. And if you don't shed that blood, you lose honor. And if you lose honor, that's it, you're out. You've been shamed, you're, you're worthless. Nobody listens to you, your family loses any protection that you could provide it and so on. So um, so I'm I'm used to that mentality. And when I look at the Arab world and our neighbors, uh, how they treat their daughters or their sons or homosexuals, or or each other, and the kind of warfare they engage in, and the the the, the sort of constant feuding that goes on, um, it's very familiar to me as a medievalist. Um, so I, I don't have I don't have that mental block that so many Westerners do. In dealing with uh, the Arab world. But that means that anybody who thinks that Said is the cat's meow, and unfortunately they have literally colonized the field of M- Middle Eastern studies, um, it considers me a racist. Now, the irony is, it's not a race, it's culture. Uh, the West was like this at one time. <laughs> Um, it's a cultural thing, but and in, in an unconscious way, I think they are the ones who are racist. They're the ones who are basically saying, look, they can't change. And therefore we have to pretend they've changed. And when you say that they behave this way, then you're describing a racial trait. I'm not describing a racial trait. They think it's a racial trait. But it's uh, it's it's so that's one thing, and then the second thing is studying apocalyptic expectation, and particularly the kind of apocalyptic expectation that, in a sense, the West fully renounced—well, not fully, but seriously renounced after the Nazis and and the Stalinists—which is this kind of top-down, imperialistic, violent. Uh, apocalyptic messianism that believes that you carve the perfect society out of the body politic and it doesn't matter how many people you have to kill in order to make the the truly just society uh, to come about. But that was common in the Middle Ages. Holy War was common, uh, both among Christians and among Muslims um and so i don't you know as a medievalist I, these things are not foreign to me whereas to an american born in the 21st century or you know the late 20th century um you know we're all raised to you know go for positive some and so on and 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 be good to each other and share and and if somebody is upset, try and understand why they're upset and see if you can help them and so on. So, and you know, th- these are all very good attitudes. They're, they're very helpful. I'm, I'm a big fan of positive, some, uh, relations, but you have to understand that not everybody is. And if you treat a person who is playing zero, sum games in which he can only win if you lose, As someone who's actually ready to play a positive-sum game in which you both win, you're in for trouble. And that's exactly what happened with Oslo. Oslo was a positive-sum proposal, land for peace. The Israelis give something, the Palestinians give something, and everybody walks away better off. And Arafat said no. And the reason he said no is because even though he would get his own country and his people would be free to run their own lives, the fact that Israel would still be around was unacceptable. And it's something that the peace camp literally did not understand, refused to understand, Mm -hmm. vilified people who pointed it out. And then when it blew up in Israel's face, the peace camp blamed Israel, and I think that 's a wound that is still bleeding today and and some of the hostility between the people in the government right now, the coalition and the people in the streets is uh, sort of carrying forward this deep division of mistrust and hostility in which the 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 peace camp thinks that the Uh, people who warned against Oslo and said it was a bad idea were actually the war camp. And the people who acknowledge and understand that we have neighbors that are not ready to make peace with us yet view the people, the peacemakers, as traitors because they're literally ready to, to render the country vulnerable in order to pursue their chimeras of peace. And you know, I have friends who are former friends, maybe they're not that, they're not that close anymore. I lost a lot of friends in 2000. Um, but you know, some of my friends back then, when I would talk to them, you know, people who one guy was on the board of J Street, and I said to him, you know, do you think that if we gave back every inch to 1967 borders, that there would be peace? And he said, absolutely. And I said, you don't understand, I mean, you're not listening to what they say in Arabic. What they say in Arabic is, the more they give back, the weaker they are, the more likely we are to succeed with a further attack on them. So for what what Arafat and the Fatah and certainly Hamas were saying during Oslo, the way Arafat sold Oslo to his people was as land for war they will give us land and we will use it to pursue the full war and the people in the west the peacemakers were saying no 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 it's land for peace and I'm sure they will they will understand and I'm sure that they will choose the right thing and when they chose the wrong thing not only did the world blame us as I said you know the, the, the more vicious the Palestinians, the more uh, it terribly we must have treated them. But the Israeli peace camp literally fed that perception, so that the, the world. Well, and is this is you got to. Re- mm-hmm.
1: And you've got to remind me what that term is again—the liberal cognizant. Uh, oh, word. so it's where the, you
2: project. It's where you project a liberal mindset, a positive-sum mindset, onto other people. So what was going on the What's the term again? uh, Well, cognitive egocentrism egocentrism is when you project your mindset onto other people. The guy who coined it was studying teenage boys and realized that not only do they only think about sex, but they assume everybody else only thinks about sex. Um, And so I use the term liberal cognitive egocentrism to say... People, you know, I have a quote from Condoleezza Rice, who's not a left winger. Um, but she said, you know, when she was asked why she thought that the peace negotiations, which failed, would succeed at the time that she was conducting them. She said, look, I have talked with Palestinians. They want what we want. They want their children to go to college. no. They don't want their daughters to go to college. They want their this. They want their that. They, they, they're just like us. And you get Palestinian leaders who will say exactly the same thing. We love our children. Wait a minute. You love your children, but you send them out to blow themselves up amongst other people's children's,
0: children. Mm-hmm.
2: It's, it's, it's like breathtaking. It, they, right after the uh, Oslo Jihad broke out, um, uh, what's his name? Ted Koppel had a thing uh, where he had the Palestinians and the Israelis and they had to build a special stage. So there was a because the Palestinians wouldn't sit in the same stage with the Israelis and stuff. And one of the Israelis um, explained to him and said, look, they chose war. They want this war. And he was furious. He was incensed. How dare you say that people want war? They're they're only going to war because they're desperate. Because you won't give them what they want. I remember at the height of the suicide terror campaign, early 2002, I went to my office and I see a guy with whom I regularly have very pleasant and interesting conversations. Um, And he says to me, oh, you look terrible. What's wrong? I said, well, you know, these suicide terror attacks, they're just so terrible. And he said, yeah, what choice do they have?
1: See and yeah, and this ties to so much of this to me, and we see this beyond just the the Middle East conflict, where people are projecting how they view the world on mm-hmm. other things. And when mm-hmm. you were talking, when you were talking about Condoleezza Rice, I, 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 it reminded me of uh, George W. Bush talking about how he looked into Putin's eyes, and it's yeah. it's this personal, this personal confidence that well because I feel something surely they must feel it right. and and if if somebody is a is a christian or a jew or or you know a a peaceful a muslim a peace loving muslim and others right. you know it's it's i think it's a normal thing to want to believe and see good but when you constantly see time and time again right. as you right. said that that you know arafat to me is a great right. example, because right. uh, you know, in, in layman's terms, they'd rather you know bite their nose off to spite their face, uh, right. you know, uh, and so it's it's hard for people to believe that, especially when there is a PR campaign to to right. obfuscate that, and exactly. and you know, in fact, they they actually understand they understand this egocentrism very well, and and they play it, they right. play it.
0: And masterfully, it.
1: and and we're exactly. and we're playing old school shtetl mentality. Yeah, you know, nice well, guys finish last, and it's it's disastrous. It's totally well, disastrous. It's not just and us. It's,
2: I it's... mean, remember that when Arafat died, the BBC reporter who covered it broke down in tears. She was crying over a man who stole billions of dollars from his own people, who said no to the, his people becoming free in 2000 and who started a ferocious suicide terror war against Israel and lied constantly to the West. And she's crying over him because she sees him as a sweet old man who just wanted what was best for his people.
1: I mean, how
2: stupid can you
1: get? But where are people telling the story? I mean, I remember the first time I was told that, that Arafat I was told he was an Egyptian yes. that was plucked by the Soviets who were creating liberation movements at the time. And this was 1964, which, so if you're talking about the 1967 porters, what's the justification for 64 to create a liberation movement? That, right. You right. know, we're three years too early. And, and the picture that was painted to me was one of like, he was a rich, he was like a playboy. And they're just like, oh, we need a personality someone charismatic to play the role of PLO leader. And, and, you know, if you say that, and, you know, part of me was like, is that true? Is that accurate? So I'm talking to you, how much of that is true? Is, is that the correct take on it, or is there probably, I assume, much more to it? No, listen, I mean, you know, on one
2: level, and there are people today who work on this, like um, Isabella Tabarovsky, work on this today and who point out that essentially what the world believes today, what the woke and the black lives matter movement believe about Israel today is literally straight out of Soviet propaganda from the fifties and the sixties. It, it, it is it, the, the overlap is close to 95%. So, you know, when you think of the fact that the Soviets were sort of famous for disinformation, famous for lying. I mean, you know, 1984, Animal Farm, all of this stuff. And, and they lost because they were lost in their world of misinformation and lies, that they should dominate the discourse in 2020s. It's just staggering. Again, it's a level of stupidity. I really have difficulty understanding, or not understanding, but but grasping. I mean, how can people be that foolish to buy this nonsense? It's very
1: distressing. Well, and as a medievalist, this must have particular significance, because I know a lot of people, and this is really was not taught to a lot of us when we were younger, really? and we we've talked extensively about the miseducation of American Jewish youth on, on my on my programs with uh, Masha Merkelova and Nyelekt and and Jared Tani and you know I think what gets missed far too much is that a lot of the Middle East conflict is really a proxy war on some levels between the classic powers of Russia and communism and not wanting another democracy in its backyard and manipulating against Israel is a way of manipulating against the West at large and getting back to America and vice versa. I mean, it's hard to entangle what is the anti-Semitic part of this, what is the classic uh, hatred of Jews and anti-Zionism, and what is just the hatred of the West, because it all gets mishmashed together. And then in, correct me if I'm wrong, the early 2000s, you talked about some of the discourse coming out. You started seeing more of a blurring between, uh, well, we didn't have Black Lives Matter yet, but we had the Black Civil Rights uh, in addition at that time, Uh, really conflating more with the Arab nationals. Can you talk a little bit about that briefly? Because I know that goes way back to the 50s and 60s. Right.
2: Well, I mean, I think it's related, again, to what we were saying about Edward Said. He set us up, um, starting in the early 80s, his take, which was essentially, don't you dare say things, he was... First of all, you have to understand, he grew up as a Vimy. He was a Christian growing up in a Muslim society, okay? And he basically learned to identify with the Palestinian cause, which allowed him to do exactly what, as a Vimy, he should do, which is to protect Islam. So in 1979... Uh, Khomeini takes over in Iran. Uh, it's a mind-boggling event for the West. Um, a lot of people are identifying the jihadi mindset behind it. And he writes a book called Covering Islam in which he just spews contempt and uh, accusations of racism at the West for saying accurate things about Islam. So, And, and this literally takes over Middle Eastern studies. So by the time 2000 hits... You've got people who are ready and primed to blame the West and to exonerate Islam. And um, so the Soviets play a key role in this. I mean, the Soviets played a key role in the development. Remember, Saeed's books coming out in 78, 79, 75, the Soviets, with their allies at the UN, pull off this massive coup of accusing Israel of Zionism being racism. So, yeah, so that's an early campaign, which sort of explodes in the year 2000.
1: Mm-hmm. And so I assume that's why you focus on the early years of the century rather than now. Um, right. That, that, that's your move. Right. I mean, yeah. look, everybody's
2: focused on what's happening currently. What I'm trying to do is explain to people who, you know, if you're even 30 years old, you were only seven in 2000 when this happened. So basically you've grown up in a world that's radically different from, say, the world that I grew up in, in which liberals were citing with Israel, which was a liberal, a remarkable democracy in a sea of authoritarian political culture. Um, But after 2003, I quote uh, Ian Buruma, saying that, uh, you know, it's a test of it's a litmus test of liberal credentials to be pro-Palestinian. And he's writing this in 2003 when the Palestinians are at the height of literally a, a genocidal war against the Israelis. I mean, if they could, if they had the power that the Nazis had, they they would have done what the Nazis did. So here you have the Palestinians behaving about as atrociously as you could ever. any. I mean... Yeah, like right up there with the worst, worst murderers and and haters in history. And it becomes a litmus test of liberal credentials to side with them. So it's a different world. Liberal means something completely different in the 21st century from what it meant in the 20th century. And as a result, I wanted to make it possible for people who grew up in this changed world to understand how it happened, how it changed, and in some senses how to unravel this insanity that we find ourselves in.
1: And so who is your ideal audience for this book? So, you know, in the
2: introduction I actually discuss, you know, I say, look, uh, most historians try and avoid making value judgments, this book is full of value judgments, so let me make it clear what my values are. And I lay out what I think my values, I think they're classic liberal values, they're about positive some relations, they're about the kind of restraint necessary to benefit everybody, et cetera, et cetera, okay. So I lay that out in the introduction and basically what I'm doing is I'm saying, look, you liberals and you progressives, out there who think that I'm a right-winger because I don't support the Palestinians who are one of the most nasty right-wing movements on the planet, imperialist to the hilt, um, You, y- the values that you cherish and that you think you're promoting are actually being betrayed by your fellow progressives and liberals, and by yourself for not challenging them. And so if you want liberal and progressive values to prevail, you've got to rethink this. And when you hear people call Israel a an apartheid, racist, genocidal society, and have no criticism of the Palestinians, know before whom you stand. You're not standing in front of a progressive. You're not standing in front of a liberal. You're standing in front of somebody who's bought into a poisonous narrative that's designed to destroy liberal and progressive values.
1: And it's got to be painful. It's almost as if some of them are living as dimmies in in the in the Democratic Party at, at the moment, because you know the, there's a derogatory name, the PEPs, which is a progressive except for Palestine, and it's it's uh, it, it's meant offensively. <laughs> it's a pejorative term, um, and you know I I I ask my friends, remind them, remind them that you're liberal, remind them you're a Democrat. Right, right. right. You know, really I true. mean, it's it's just because because you get accused of not being that, and right. um, it should be. What exactly. we're fighting for is words, a liberal value.
2: This is the first time I hear yeah. this expression, Peps. But my answer to the being called a Pep, which is what I am, a progressive except for Palestine, is to say,
1: and with good reason, Palestine's not a progressive cause. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I told you, uh, I told you, my my term now is a Jedi, a Jewish ex Democrat independent. That's that's, <laughs> that's that's the positive one. <laughs> so you can join the Jedi. If you're tired of being a pep, you can be a Jedi. Right. <laughs> um, so um, before we get deeper into this, I, I really wanted to ask you, since you obviously study the similarities between 1000 and 2000, right. are there other parallels in history that are have a similar, I'm going to call it mass hysteria. Of misinformation right. against Jews, even if they didn't have the you know mass media we have now, gotcha. um, that resulted okay. in widespread anti. Right. Can you just put the groupthink and anti-Semitism? Yeah. Can you put yeah. it in context so we draw the sure. parallel? Uh,
2: I'm actually I'm actually preparing to write about this in my book on the oh, 11th cool. century, in the year 1009. Well, let's go back years. In the year 1006, there was a nova which lit up the sky, and it was noticed in China, it was noticed in the Muslim world, and it was noticed in various places in the West. Now, the uh, Fatimid Caliph, who was uh, centered in Cairo in Egypt, saw this and took it to mean that he, this was a sign of his divinity, which is very rare in Islam. In Christianity, you get people who think they're divine. In Islam, you very rarely get this. So this Fatimid um, starts acting very erratically, and among other things, he destroys the Holy Sepulchre. In the year 1009, which is the year 400 in the Muslim calendar, this is this mujadid every Hundred years is uh, sort of an apocalyptic moment. Uh, He destroys the Holy Sepulchre. Okay. Now, by this point, Jerusalem had become extremely important, I would argue because of the year 1000, extremely important in the Western Christian imagination. And the news that the Holy Sepulchre had been destroyed was devastating. What happened was that a rumor started that the Jews had told al Hakim to do this. And since they weren't in a position to go punish al Hakim, they started, they basically turned on the Jews, in my reading. They believed that this was the end of time, that Al Hakim was the Antichrist, that the Jews had sided with Antichrist, and that either they converted or they had to be massacred. And they were massacred. And the historian I wrote my thesis on actually has a passage in which he says they preferred, some of them preferred to slit their own throats rather than convert. Now, um, that's 80 years before the Crusades. That's already almost a century earlier than the first clearly recorded case of mass murder of Jews in Europe. And it happens right in the wake of the year thousand and in this highly charged apocalyptic atmosphere. So, um, so yeah. And basically every time you get apocalyptic expectations among Christians, I actually sort of figure this out in the, 90s as i was working on this material that that you know in the sort of upswing of enthusiasm and hope christians turn to jews and expect them to convert because they love them so they so they're they're pushing for the conversion of the jews through love bombing. but when jesus doesn't appear they engage in this what I call apocalyptic scapegoating in which the refusal of the Jews to convert is the reason that Jesus didn't appear. And then you get really nasty stuff. So, you know, it's famous. Martin Luther um, initially when he first broke with the church was very favorable towards the Jews because he thought, oh, you know, of course the Jews have been rejecting the church. They got it wrong. But now that I have it right, they won't reject me. So he turns to them in a friendly fashion and when they don't respond the way he wants he's even worse than the Catholics against whom he's fighting so so this this sort of pattern of philo-Judaism followed by anti-semitism I think is built into the apocalyptic experience of Christians and I thought that 2000 would be a moment where that happened um, at the time I thought it would be the the fundamentalist Christians who believed that the rapture was gonna happen in two thousand who would turn on the Jews. And I do think that if Arafat had said yes to Camp David and a left wing secular government in Israel had given back the Temple Mount and the West Bank, uh Judean Samaria, to the Palestinians, that it would have been they who turned against us. But instead it was Arafat said no. Um, And it was the progressive left that turned against us. But, uh, you know, I was going around, I even went to Rabbi Sachs in England uh, in 1999 and told him what I thought. And he said, don't be ridiculous, it's not going to happen. At least he had the good grace subsequently to write that, uh, you know, after 2000 hit, uh, he thought, oh, Landis was right. But most of the people wow. just
1: blew me off. Yeah. Yeah, I I love that you I love how you casually refer to it as love bombing. Uh huh. because there is a thin a thin line between love and hate and I you know, for anyone who doesn't know, yes. philo-Semitism is when you love Jews, you know. So a lot of yes. a lot of sometimes anti-semitism is coded like you know you may be saying oh i love them or i admire right. them because they're smart or rich but it's yeah. really not <laughs> it, it, it's it's not a good thing it's 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 icky and uncomfortable and you know even muhammad was love bombing us you know back in the day but we didn't convert and then right. you know that right. exactly badly. Okay. so it. i mean we seem to be in a golden age of jewish christian relations right now that I'm in the Midwest, so I I might have a different perspective than other people. Right. But I mean, I me, it seems like we've never been better. So I mean, are you concerned about the 2000 anniversary? You said is coming up in 2033.
2: Uh, that's interesting. I, I actually, you know, every time I meet a Christian, I ask about it, and they don't they don't think it's of any you know, they're they're sort of puzzled at why I'd be interested in it. So uh, I don't know. I, it may only pick up in the years just before it. Um, it's really hard to say. I mean, I, I would like to think, but I, I must say that I've been sobered by the last 23 years. I would like to think that there is enough decency and good sense for Christians who are hopeful about something and get disappointed to maybe be a little more self-critical and a little less scapegoating. Um, but, you know, it's actually terrifying the degree to which people seem to enjoy their anti-Semitism. It's really, you know, you you look at people like all the people, again, with the help of Jews, who say things like... Um, you know uh, the Ira definition of anti-Semitism prevents the Palestinians from; it takes away their freedom of speech. What they're really saying is, it takes away the ability of the Palestinians to engage in anti-Semitic discourse. But it's exactly, like, it's so so important that there be that permission to jubate to to. To crap on the Jews—it's just really breathtaking.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the the Christians I know—I have tried to find a single Christian that believes in the rapture. If if there are any out there, talk to me because I can't find one. They laugh, you know. It's uh, right. Well, look, it, it, it was it's embarrassing. Not, I mean, uh, you know,
2: I I ran a center for millennial studies in the 60s, in the in the 1990s 2000 and stuff and you know the stuff that was coming out at the time was really kind of embarrassing you know it was and and there were jokes about it there were you know people had bumper stickers saying when the rapture happens gonna have your car um and, and stuff like that but there was really uh a remarkable degree of commitment to this belief in the rapture and it didn't happen and so I think that that by and large that doesn't have the kind of currency that it once had. On the other hand, Christians apocalyptic expectation is literally built into Christianity and it's not gonna go away.
1: Mm-hmm. I guess what's what's different this time around is that they're under attack too. I mean, you know, in the, in the same neighborhood, there's the same people that hate Jews and Israelis also hate Christians. So there's more of a natural allyship now, hopefully increasingly here in America as well. And if you look at, as you know better than I, you know, in, in, in Bethlehem and other places that are holy sites for Christians, they were doing fine and being protected under Jewish control. And once that land was given away or lost, it was some of them have just been historical sites destroyed. It's really, it's really tragic. So, I mean, to me, there's a natural allyship. The question is whether it will maintain into the next generation, because we've seen the effects of all the toxic discourse on campuses and whereas uh, I believe it's about 80% of evangelical Christians in America are very pro-Israel, um, that number shrinks dramatically to uh, in the 20s uh, for young people under 30. And so right. that's, that's something that will – we may not feel it now, but in about 15, 20 years we're going to feel it. So, so I always tell people we have 10 years, uh, right. 10 or 15 years to, to reverse this before right. the whole canvas is going to change dramatically, and it's and that's just one group of people, you know. We didn't, we could go through all the others.
2: Yeah, and incidentally, twenty thirty three comes right in there.
1: Yeah, why do you think the liberal progressive position has been so distorted?
2: Well, if you want me to be blunt. First of all, we have to distinguish between sort of liberals who are misinformed by the media and by academics and the media and the academics who are misinforming them. So I think there are different motivations there. I think most people, if you read the New York Times and Time magazine and watch CNN, you don't know that the Palestinians preachers are calling for genocide from the pulpit, which is something that no German minister or priest during the Nazi period ever did, and yet it's a daily occurrence in the Palestinian world. You don't know about that. You don't know all of the really nasty stuff that's going on there because the media is just not informing you. So there's a certain amount of innocence. But on the other hand, and I think the media among other things is deeply deeply intimidated if you you know uh, you talk to an honest journalist and they'll tell you they're terrified if you write something or say something that uh, the Palestinians don't like you get a message from your friends telling you you better leave because it's not safe for you anymore Now, the Israelis may not be nice to journalists who screw them, but they're not knocking them off. Whereas, basically, when you talk to journalists about this, they say, well, no, I mean, come on, they love me. And my response to them is, they love you as long as you say what they want you to say. Try being critical and see how much they love you. So... Um, Mm -hmm. There's that problem. But then it seems to me there are two other problems. One is this issue of liberal cognitive egocentrism in which we don't allow ourselves to see the bad stuff. Um, But I think that that's part of a kind of cowardice in which we're afraid of being critical of Islam because we're not ready for the kind of response that's gonna get. You can be very critical of the Jews, and all you'll get is the Jews are going to whine. I talk in the the book about this vicious, vicious uh, cartoon done by a British cartoonist of Sharon as um, Kronos devouring children. Um, And, you know, there was an outcry and so on, and The guy did a documentary on Janine, and he went and he asked this guy, you know, how come he not only did it, was it a tremendously successful cartoon, popular, but it was given a prize as the best cartoon by the British Political Cartoon Society, and he asked the head of the Cartoon Society, how come there are no, how come there are no cartoons of Arafat eating babies, because, you know... (laughs) He really does sacrifice babies. And the guy said, Well, Jews don't do fatwas, do they?
0: Meaning, mm-hmm. you know,
2: you do this you do this to the Palestinians, you do this to the Muslims, your life's in danger. You do this to Jews and they whine and you get more hits. And then there's the last thing, and I'm about to come out with an article in a journal of anti Semitism on this what I call progressive, secular supersessionism. Supersessionism is a term that was first developed by the Christians, and it means literally to sit on top of. And the Christians believe that they replaced us. They erased and replaced us. Unfortunately, we didn't disappear. And part of their difficulty with us is that we didn't disappear. But basically the belief was that Christianity... Judaism was sort of the booster rocket but Christianity was the real the real thing and once Christianity was in orbit you didn't need Judaism anymore so there's a kind of competition involved in which the modern progressive left as previously the enlightenment as previously islam as previously christianity felt that they claimed now that they were the moral cutting edge of mankind, that, that they were the ones who were represented the highest level of morality. So basically, you know, there's, my father used to call it invidious identity formation, which is, I'm big because you're small. And he always used to say to me, you don't make yourself look bigger by making other people look smaller. But in an unashamed culture, that's exactly what you do. You make yourself look bigger by making other people look smaller. And I think that mm-hmm. for the progressives, they believe that they make themselves look bigger by making Israel look smaller. And so any news of Jews behaving badly, is like a bomb to their soul. It's a, it's a, it's a reassurance that they're the good guys because their rivals are the bad guys and instead of and incidentally this is true of christianity (laughs) siding with the roman empire against the jews rather than with the jews who shared much more of their values than the romans did you know the liberals are siding with the palestinians who don't share their values at all. In fact, they despise their values. They, they throw their homosexual sons off the roof. They're siding with them against people who share their values. They're kicking Jews out of progressive movements because they're not willing to turn on their fellow Jews and identify with these, this monstrosity of a Palestinian quote-unquote liberation movement. And, get the, and yet and get a lot in. of
1: Jews do, though. A lot of Jews yes, do throw their fellow do. Jews under the bus, and that's become a real problem because some of the leaders who you would expect and assume to be speaking out against this aren't.
0: Right. Um,
1: they're either right. silent or they, they actually are batting for the other team sometimes. So, And that that's really devastating for a lot of people. So you, you become yep. a pariah if yep. you speak this out, very you good. know
2: there's a there's a very good book on that and you should interview the guy who wrote it David Bernstein wrote a book called The Woke Antisemitism mm-hmm. and he was a, yeah. a a leader in the Jewish community and you know he just he realized that the people that he depended on had sold out and
1: wouldn't let him fight Yeah no, the Dave has been on my radar for sure, and and uh, Randy Chesatinsky yeah. that works with him also, and and you know you and he and really almost everybody I've interviewed for the most part are part of what I consider to be a, a growing awareness of liberal centrists, if you will. Uh, people I think forget that you guys come from from the left, from the Democratic yeah. Party. There's this, you you, yep. you really you guys really do need to remind them constantly
0: right. that
1: you're on the left. You know, saying Rosenbaum is a firebrand, you know, with this stuff, right. and you get accused of being right-wing all the time. But no, right. this is the left. Right. This is what a non-subservient exactly. liberal exactly. Jew looks right. like. And, and you know, even even the Republican Jews, I know, would say that, yeah, American Jewry always did the best under classic liberalism. And and that can be right. a left and right wing value. You know, that doesn't, that right. to me is right. different than party. Maybe people disagree with that. But um, it's the extremes of all sides that are the problem. And it's the moderate, sensible people of all sides that are the solution. But if you if you give everybody a litmus test, and say, well, you're either this or that. There's no in-between. Right. Then who's in the middle? Who Who's the lighthouse in the middle keeping the light on or, right. or building exactly. a bridge? And, and, and that's exactly. by design. That's People that don't want us to have that piece are, in my opinion, antagonizing that middle position. And, and we have to fight for it anyway.
2: Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I remember back in the late 70s when I was in graduate school, Um, One of the professors was uh, Carl Shorsky, and, you know, his period was the modern period and stuff, and one of the points that he made is that the reason that there's no liberal party in England, uh, now there is, but back then there wasn't, um, the reason that there was no liberal party was because the liberals won, that both Tory and Labour came out of, there were two wings of liberal. And basically, a democracy is based on liberal principles, free principles. Um, and and what's happened is that it, it, liberal got hijacked. And it got hijacked, and the people who should have said no did not say no. And um, I, I think I have to disagree with you on the Republican Party, but I'm looking at it from a distance. You're probably closer up. Uh, it looks to me like uh, the Republicans have as... Much of a problem with radicalization, not as much, because the Democratic Party, I think, uh, is really problematic. But I think the Republican, I mean, I stopped voting Democratic. 2000 was the last time I voted Democratic. Um, 2004, I didn't vote. 2008, I did vote. For Republicans, but uh, I didn't. I, you know, at this point, I can't vote for anybody. Um, it's really sort of, uh, you know, this is one of the things that happens. One of the one of the other rules of uh, apocalyptic dynamics is one person's Messiah is another person's Antichrist, and so you know, we get really crazy people doing really crazy stuff on the left, you end up with really crazy people doing really crazy stuff on the right. Um,
1: I agree with that.
2: And I I think that's what's happening in Israel today. Um, I think the misbehavior started, you know, everybody can find the place where they think it starts, but I think on a a really big scale, it started with the peace camp in the Oslo period, um, got much worse after the Oslo Jihad, in which that, that can't blamed Israel, and I think that the empowerment of the sort of messianic right in Israel today is, to a large extent, fueled by a sense that the left has betrayed
1: us. Mm-hmm. It, it is, I mean, there are poisonous actors on, on both sides, yeah. and I think it comes down to who actually is on the fringe and who is in elected office, because that's when it changes. And, you know, just this week, right. uh, a, a study came out that for the first time ever, the Democratic Party uh, has more sympathies towards the Palestinians right. than Israel. And right. I mean, I, I think in theory, it's not surprising, but seeing it statistically there is, has really been jarring for a lot of people. Um, yeah,
2: although and... I, I don't I don't trust those kinds of statistics. But anyway. Mm-hmm. But but I do think yeah. that, that the you know, you ask me who's my audience. My audience is I'm basically saying to people with with real commitment to liberal and progressive values that until you start dealing with with the problem of global jihad, until you start dealing with the cognitive war that's being fought against you by organizations like CARE, until you reject the literal cogwar bomb of Islamophobia being automatically an accusation of racism, until you deal with the problems that are literally until you deal with the enemies of democracy, there's going to be no middle. We need the liberal sensibility struggling with the problem, not the liberal sensibility lying to everybody about how everything's just fine. If only, I don't know, Israel would disappear, then they'd be okay. I mean, it's right. insane. I had a, a, a classmate of mine came to visit Jerusalem. And, you know, we, we talked about various things. And then at the end, he said, look, you know, I basically think you guys are going to be the cause of World War III. If it weren't for you, there wouldn't be this war between the uh, Muslims in the West. You're the cause. Wow. of it.
1: Yeah. Wow. Yeah.
2: Whereas, what I think is that genuine liberals should be saying to, instead of saying Islam is a religion of peace and the vast majority are moderate, g- giving them a litmus test. The litmus test of a moderate Muslim is somebody who can get along with Jews, and not just Jews who take their side, get along with Israelis. Israelis would like nothing better than to get along with their neighbors.
1: And there are many, many uh, Muslims that get along great. There are many peace-loving Muslims, but they also get attacked when they try to stand up to these forces. And I think it's what's the biggest tragedy is that there is a human rights crisis in Gaza and the West Bank. And, And there are Palestinians suffering terribly, but it's, it's because of Hamas. It's not because of Israel. Everybody's being punished because of Hamas and, and all of this. And, you know, it, it's just very frustrating, and it speaks to the title of your book. It's just when the facts aren't getting out, and we're right. living in a, po- a post-fact world, the, the VUCA world now, they right. talk about, you know, how does that bode for the future of news reporting and also the academy because if the experts and the fact checkers no longer have any system of checks and balances, why should right. we trust them to be the curator of expert opinions and facts and, and more also more maddening is like how do we fight against when they're quoting them? You know, and it's like and, and these NGOs that are you know very right. you know dishonest.
2: Right. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you and I think, you know, one of the things that for me has been quite appalling Uh, Because I actually can say I saw this coming in the 90s when I first set up the website for the Center for Millennial Studies and realized what an incredible resource the Internet was. I realized that it was terribly important to have some kind of anchor, what we would call fact-checking, and what's been extremely distressing for me is to see organizations that either claim to be fact checkers or at least initially were fact checkers uh, going south. Uh, So so, uh, Mm -hmm. an organization like Snopes at one point was a very valuable fact checker. But after a while, it began to, you could see it sort of processing stuff and coming to conclusions that in a previous period they wouldn't have done. And it was all, I mean, not all, but what I pay attention to is information about Islam. It was all to protect Islam. I mean, there's this insane notion. It's not insane, but but it's it's deeply mistaken, which is to say if we report what Muslims are doing and say they do it because they're Muslims and they believe in it like 9-11, um, you know, that was done by Muslims who were deeply committed to the religious meaning of that act um, or, you know, the guy who shot up Fort Hood in 2009 Um Major Hassan, you know, instead of saying, oh, well, he was crazy and he, you know, mentally imbalanced and so on. No, he was driven by an ideology. So uh, we're afraid that if we say this, people won't like Islam. Now, I think it's up to Muslims to show us an Islam that's likable, rather than for us to paint a really dislikable Islam as likable just so we won't be racist.
1: I I think the solution has to come from within them, and there are people trying. There's just not enough of them. And, you know, the the question is really, I mean, this is really, you know, the question everybody asks is how do we break through and convince this new intelligentsia that their assumptions are false? Because you really feel, in layman's terms again, it feels like this narcissistic triangle and it's moral narcissism where no matter what the Jews are, the scapegoat, the Palestinians are the golden children and everyone else gets to have the, their golden victims. White, the you know, the white savior complex of, right. of all of this. Right. And it, it's, I mean, I, I think, you know, when, when I'm talking to somebody who isn't, isn't going to sit through 2,000 years of history of the Middle East and, you know, how it was a manufactured refugee situation, and there actually is a Palestinian nation it's called Jordan, um, you know, you don't get to that. If I, I explain it using that uh, model, and a lot of times they get it. They're like, yeah, they are the scapegoats. Uh, I mean, how do we – obviously, that doesn't stop the situation or solve anything, but it it is a new intelligence, yeah, and it's, it's just very hard to break through.
0: Yeah, well,
2: you know, I would say that um, – and to be honest, I've been saying this for 20 years without results, so – but I keep saying. At some point, people are going to realize that this is self-destructive behavior. So what we need to do is to prepare to help people when they wake up to how self-destructively they've been behaving to sort of help guide them in a healthier direction. Unfortunately, one of the things that the sort of medical analogies that occurs to me is this is a kind of autoimmune disease in which our Vimy leaders, instead of mobilizing against the enemies of democracy are actually mobilizing against the white blood cells that are trying to go out and fight for democracy. Um, And so what you end up with is a situation in which, you know, I mean, I remember as as a teenager with a healthy appetite when I first heard about eating disorders, uh, that people could actually die from an eating disorder and I thought no you know at some point you realize this is dangerous and you start eating <laughs> but, but no it's possible that even the worse it gets the less capable you are of realizing so yeah. you know I, yeah. I, I don't know what to say I, I just uh, I'm, uh, uh, I'm I'm amazed Um, horrified Um, somebody said the language in my book is uh, uh, too polemical and stuff Um, look I I can't be sort of placid about what I see as a a real catastrophe and even if we pull out of it there's going to be a lot of damage there already is a lot of damage there will be more damage before we pull out of this if we pull out of it um, so I don't know. I, somebody joked that, uh, my book, my book right now is, uh, paired at Amazon with David Bernstein's and we're going to do a podcast at some point. Um, oh, great. so uh, somebody said, you know, your book shouldn't be paired with another book. It should be paired with antidepressants.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, I think all of this work, uh, you know, qualifies with that, but that's that's why we're such good comics. But um, yeah, they're actually ex- yeah. um, Ken Marcus coined the term iatrogenic antisemitism. Did you hear that lecture? Yes, yeah, um, yeah, it,
0: yeah.
1: Oh, sure. Yeah, it, it's that term, that medical analogy where when you go to a doctor or the hospital and they make you worse, right. not better. And um,
0: right.
1: the, the context of that was a little bit more with the diversity, equity, inclusion, which is ironically excluding Jews. Uh, more in in practice here in in the states, right. but um, but right. yeah, there's. I guess you have to give credit where credits due. That not not all of this is originally intentional. There are people that know exactly what they're doing when they do it. There are others who are useful idiots, as they say. Um, but there are people that I think there are people that wake up. You know, I, I was contacted by a woman that um, I'm not going to reveal details, but she. You know, she, she had been part of one of those groups that right. uh, were very, very much, you know, uh, Jews against Jews, basically, on college campuses. Right. And and you know, she really didn't realize what they were doing. You know, she like they, they right. signed up some of these students to, of course, they felt sorry for Palestinian suffering. I mean, right. who wouldn't? They are suffering. Right. But, but, you know, without the story and, and then with the agenda that is very much going against Jews, exploiting that it's a different it's a different beast so you know i hopefully it will but um i i can't let you go without asking you to weigh in on all the latest headlines about artificial intelligence i know you've previously talked about how the blogosphere is both a problem and a solution for fact checking Um, how do you think the present course of ai will influence middle east reporting in the next five to ten years
2: Oh, jeez. Um, to be honest...
1: I just opened up another can of worms, didn't I? <laughs> yeah, and also, um,
2: look, I have a daughter who's a radiologist, and she loves CHAT-GPT because it can gather a whole bunch of information for her very quickly. But she's not going to be replaced by CHAT-GPT because... The interpretation of the evidence is still immensely a human and intuitive as well as analytical uh, skill. So she doesn't, she and her colleagues in radiology just see ChatGPT as uh, a help. And I I gather that ChatGPT is significantly tilted towards the Palestinians, although. It has a learning capacity, so if you ask it what caused the Palestinian refugee problem, it will start by giving you the standard answer. But then, if you start bringing other evidence, it takes it into account. So, it, you know, in in a, in a ideal scenario, ChatGPT or artificial intelligence will actually restore some kind of balance um, because it's not part of this emotional commitment to a salvific truth about how if only we give back the land to the Palestinians, everything will be fine, or, you know, the poor Palestinians, they're the victims, etc. It could be that the sort of, what's the word I'm looking for, the sort of impartiality of uh, artificial intelligence might restore some balance. I honestly yeah. don't know. I mean, I have a colleague who says it's a disaster that she's now the only papers she gets from her students are clearly from uh, ChatGPT because they have nothing from the class, and the only stuff that they have from the reading is from the better known reading. So you know, they're and and that's a disaster for the intelligence of the next generation. That's what I worry about. I I worry that the next generation, you know, when when I first discovered the internet, it was glorious. I could, I mean, right now I'm sitting at my desk in Jerusalem and and I need the Chronicon Novalicense, which is, you know, this obscure thing that I have to go to one of six libraries in America to be able to get access to. And I can not only get it, find it on the internet, but download it. And I can examine manuscripts and I can download the manuscripts and so on. So,
1: you know, yeah. it's a
2: wonderful world for me. But for somebody who grew up in it, um, somebody who, you know, from the age of like my, gra- my grandchildren who at the age of two already know how to deal with the screen and go from one picture to another and so on and so forth. For for them, yeah. uh, you know, Jonathan hates does a lot of stuff on the sort of mental yeah. illness which is imposed mm-hmm. by um, that. that's the result of being too immersed in this metaverse. So, yeah, no, and I think that along with the impact of the way we handle uh, COVID and stuff. People are more isolated from each other. I think there's less socialization. There's less contact between human beings. And uh, I I think it's, I'm worried. I, I'm, I'm genuinely worried that, you know, in a couple of generations, well, there's a movie about it called Mediocracy. <laughs> you know, mm. and it's sort of like, you know, when they made the movie they didn't even know about the internet but the internet i think will definitely contribute to this the the lack of intellectual and emotional development of subsequent generations
1: i think as neil postman said you know technology get us and take us away and there's always opportunities, even though there's also problems. And But from a as a teacher, it is, the more you rely on something else instead of yourself, the, the lazier certain parts of your brain get, I think. I think right. the more we outsource logic to a computer, we, we stop trusting ourselves something. So I think, I mean, I don't have evidence, but I think that that makes us more apt to believe other things because we're, less accustomed to trusting ourselves all the time right. and oh right. the computer right. says this so it must be right must be this you know and yes. um, in fact it, it, i remember i remember
2: before the ways came out somebody was saying that taxi drivers have a much lower incidence of alzheimer's because they're constantly doing mental calculations they're constantly mapping out there but now you don't do that anymore, um, yeah so yeah, no, I think i I think that the listen I mean yeah, this both supports your case and undermines it. Um, when writing first came out, Plato has a dialogue about it in which the inventor of writing is very proud. And the the wise man says, no, you know, you've just invented a way for people to be lazy because they won't have to remember things. They can write them down. And so (laughs) as a result, you know, writing is is gonna be the cause of a decline in human uh, wisdom. Um, And you can argue one way or another, but there's no question that they are both blessings and curses. You, you go back to the apple, and the, the apple, the fruit in the garden um, that Adam and Eve. Ate. It had ups and it had downs. And that's the case mm-hmm. with every communications revolution.
1: And isn't there a pattern throughout history where each new technological innovation has somewhat contributed to anti-Semitism from medieval times? I mean, like the printing press made it easier to spread the blood libel
2: certainly the internet has it easier to spread the blood libel so i would say and i have said that uh, every new communications revolution leads to sort of provokes apocalyptic expectations and i speculate that if we had you know the the number of books that we have that were printed before 1500, which is sort of the first half a century of printing. Uh, you can count on, you know, maybe 100, 200. I'm not sure, but very rare. Uh, it's called an incunabulus, and it's an extremely rare phenomenon. But if we had the flyers and the pamphlets that were being produced by printing presses in the 15th century. I think the overwhelming number of them would be some combination of astrology, magic, and apocalyptic. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, so now there is, as I said earlier, a significant dynamic relationship between apocalyptic expectation and anti-Semitism. Um, and, and again, you know, one of the problems is that the Jews are early adopters of these new technologies. Uh, we still may read from the scroll and not a codex, but um, we we adopted printing quite quickly and we're, we're good at this stuff. And that inevitably arouses hostility in a sense that you know this this belief that there's a kind of conspiracy that the Jews are engaged in to subject the rest of the world. And so the more technology that comes, the better we are at it, like Hollywood, um, the more the more the suspicion that we're up to no good.
1: Yeah, the irony is that yes, we we may be early adopters and use technology, but we don't necessarily use it for our own public relations. In fact, not no. nearly enough. No. Um, so yeah. there, there's a little great great irony there. Well, <laughs> okay. Well, I, was gonna okay, say, well, I there's, have.
2: There's a passage in the Talmud about the last judgment where God is sitting and and uh, in in judgment, and Leviathan is sort of curled up in his lap like a cat. And stuff and and the the Jews are supplying the Gentiles with arguments to use to defend themselves, and, and that's why we're such good lawyers. We can think up all sorts of good stuff, but somehow, for other people, but somehow, when it comes to defending ourselves, we got problems.
1: <laughs>
2: all right, ask your last question,
1: yeah. Okay. Well, we have a pre-submitted audience question. Um, mm-hmm. This is a good one. Jennifer asks, can you discuss the role of Iran in promoting Pallywood propaganda and cultivating financing and creating these millennial themes? For example, the anti-Semitic conference New Horizons, where they incubated the deadly exchange, we need to explain what that is, and other organized talking points. Is anyone following the money, and where is this professional PR campaign trickling down from? So,
2: uh, look, I mean, the answer is yes. Um, they are a major purveyor of this stuff. and In fact, Erwin um, uh, Kotler made a remark in the early 21st century about how Israel is the only country that is at once uh, accused of genocide and is the object of genocide. And he was thinking of the Iranians. Um, so, yes, there's no question that that these guys are amongst the most uh, dangerous apocalyptic haters on the planet today. The really staggering thing is this notion that is very strong among Democrats that we can make a deal with the Iranians and things will be okay. And Biden seems to be pursuing it despite how atrociously they treat his envoys and stuff. It's like, you know, we can't degrade ourselves enough. And and it's to people who really hate us and and hate the Jews, and um, I, I just it boggles my mind that both Obama and Biden pursue this policy of appeasement towards Iran when they should be working in every way possible to get rid of that regime.
1: Mm-hmm. And I mean, does anyone following the money where? a lot of these negative narratives are coming from? I mean, do they trace them directly to them? I'm sure there
2: are people, but I can't tell you who they are. I have limited bandwidth, and that's not in my... It's it's (laughs) sort of like, I see that from
1: afar. Not in this millennium? (laughs) Well, Richard, what is something you wish everybody would do right now to learn about the truth of the Middle East, a conflict? other than read my book, <laughs> well, that that's a given. Of course, they should. By read the way, your book. <laughs> by the way, I
2: should mention that um, starting on Thursday at six my time, so that would be eleven American, eleven in the morning American time. Uh, I'll be giving a four-session course over the next four Thursdays. Uh, about the book. We'll go through each of the the historical chapters, uh, Adua and the Intifada, 9-11, Janine and the the Danish cartoon scandal, and discuss all these issues. And that's going to be participation so people can not only join the the class, but join the conversation. Uh, And that's through ISCAP, Uh, I'll send you a link so that you can make that available. Um, What I think, you know, basically, people, people with liberal values have to wake up. I mean, that's what my book is designed to do, but there are other ways. But until people with liberal and progressive values are ready to stop somebody who accuses anybody who's critical of Islam of Islamophobia, to stop somebody who, you know, like the woman who said to Kamala Harris, uh, you know, uh, what about the Israelis committing ethnic cleansing and genocide against the Palestinians? And, and Kamala Harris says, well, I'm so glad you spoke your truth. No. Mm -hmm. The answer to that is, what are you talking about? So until people are willing to do that, we're the lobster in the pot cooking or the frog in the pot cooking, and it's just going to get hotter.
1: Well, we need more books like yours and more websites like Honest Reporting and organizations like like David Bernstein's and White Rose Magazine. There are a lot of places that are trying to reclaim liberal values because right. um, you know, true, true liberalism is a good thing right.
2: yeah. and above all visit sites like Memory, M-E-M-R-I and Palestinian Media Watch, Pal Watch visit them and get some translations of what Arabs are saying in Arabic to each other because you're not going to get it from your journalists they're not checking that out mm-hmm. they're giving you what the Palestinians say in English which is double talk which is, we're ready for peace. We've done everything that we need to. It's the Israelis who are holding it up. It's the occupation, the occupation, the occupation. And they won't even ask them, do you think Tel Aviv is occupied? Because they do.
1: So that was really the original mistake, is allowing the word occupation to be normalized um, and not fighting back. Because, I mean, again, if you don't nip things in the bud, it does not get better with age. So. Um, <laughs> Yeah. Um, How can people learn more and support your work?
2: Well, I have a blog called the Aegean Stables. I'll send you the information. But, um, you know, and if if people want to contribute, I'm trying to raise money for a translation into French. Um, Because the French are really, it's where this started. Um, And I'm not laying all the blame on the French, but they definitely should know what's going on. So uh, if they want to donate, they could donate through SPME, where I, uh, I'm on the board. But um, I, I don't know, you know, start reading, listen to you, listen to other people. I, it's just, it's kind of hard to know who you can trust. Um because people you have are to do a so lot of
1: research on your own these you days. so yeah.
2: committed, right, right, right. It's really hard. And that's why, again, I say we desperately need liberals who will grapple with this rather than run away from it. Because as long yeah. as liberals don't deal with this, we're going to get right-wing answers, real right-wing answers, You know, and and it's interesting because when I say to people when I describe unashamed culture in the Arab world, after calling me a racist, they say, well, so what do we do, kill them all? No, no. We start putting pressure on them to grow up. Oh, well, that's condescending. Okay, it's condescending. They behave like children, and we're not, we can't respond like mature adults. We have to respond like, I don't know, indulgent parents. Heaven forbid I should criticize my child.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, we will put. We have a section called Act Fast on our website, um, uh-huh. which is, okay. accompanies the Talking Point page, and it's where we put additional sort of follow-up actionable material. So um, we'll make sure whatever you give us, we'll put on there. Your I know your website is richardlandis.com dot sure. com, and you have a you have a couple different websites. So. Whatever you give us, we'll put on there. There's obviously so much more to talk about. As in, actually, by the way, Richard, we said a You set a new record. You are now the longest talking point interview. You've <laughs> you've, uh, you've 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 knocked uh, Jared Tanney down to second place. <laughs> well, yes, we've been on for and two and a half hours. Something like that. So uh, and we have just a quick lightning round left now. So these are, okay. these are short but, but fun. Um, why are you proud to be a Jew? <laughs> um,
2: I think we're an amazing people. We are masters of two key arts, um, self-deprecating humor and self-criticism. And um, as a result, uh, I think we've contributed an enormous amount to the world of freedom. That's a fabulous that good story. answer.
1: Yeah. Who are your Jewish role models?
2: Uh, it's Deborah the judge, uh, Gideon the judge, um, Rabbi Sachs. Yeah.
1: What concerns you most about the present situation in relationship to the Jewish people?
2: That we're tearing ourselves each other apart. That we, in Israel, it's clear that each side views the other as malevolent. And you know, it's the one thing the rabbis were reading Pirkei Avot now. uh, during the counting of the and one of the things that the rabbis is very clear on repeatedly is, you know, give the other guy the benefit of the doubt. And we're not. And, and I understand it because some people are behaving really badly. But I think even the people who behave badly are not doing it out of malice. They're doing it because they think that it's the right thing to do. Now, that may be self-indulgent, it may be lacking in self-awareness, but it's not Mm
1: malice. That applies to a lot of things these days. Yeah. What makes you really mad?
2: (laughs) I wrote a book about it. Stupidity in the (laughs) face of aggression.
1: For those who look up to you, what do you want them to remember?
2: that I was willing to sacrifice my credibility in a increasingly dishonest academic world, uh, in order to say what I thought. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of people dismissed me as a, as a conspiracy theorist and as a Zionist, um, you know, because they were part of this lunacy that took over academia. And it did it before 2000. It already started in the 80s and the 90s. Yeah. You know, and most people ducked, and I didn't duck. And by the way, on that subject, I am not emeritus at BU. My colleagues did not give me emeritus status.
1: That's, that's really a shame. Yeah, I mean, it really makes makes you guys all the work you guys do is just that much more appreciated because of what you guys have had to deal with with all of that. And and I know it's very hard, you know, tenured or not, but especially untenured, what what right. the academics are going through is is very well discussed in this, even in Jewish studies uh, departments.
2: it's exactly. so really. In And I have a a cousin, once removed, who is trying to get a job in academia now, and he's literally told, take off any time you spend in Israel from your CV. And, And we're talking about so you can get a job in a Jewish studies department, not so you can get a job in a Middle Eastern studies department. Anyway, I just want to quote to whom I dedicated my book. To all those who have been shunned, stigmatized, canceled, made pariahs for resisting the wave of folly that this book chronicles.
0: Hmm.
1: Yeah. And that's what the Jewish TV channel wants to really be a voice for those people uh, that are not being heard and that are being disenfranchised elsewhere. So, um, yeah. Well, my last my last uh, lightning round question for you, what's your outlook on the future of the Jewish people? Are you hopeful?
2: I talk in the book about hopium. Uh, it's an addiction. Of course I'm hopeful. Do I have reason to be hopeful? Uh, I used to have a friend who was a real pessimist, um, and um, we would have these arguments, and I would say, look, Steve, it's really easy to be a smart pessimist. But it's hard to be a smart optimist. So I like I like the hard path. (laughs)
1: Well, Richard Landis, I want to thank you for being with us today and all the important work you're doing to tell the truth about the Middle East conflict. I know it is definitely not always easy, but it's very appreciated and You know, we hope you come back again and talk to us soon.
2: All right, good. Thank you very much. This was great.
1: Well, that's it for this edition of Talking Point. Tune in next time when we'll speak with Lana Melman from Liberate Art about the BDS boycott against Hollywood celebrities, Jews, and Israel. For Jewish TV Channel, I'm Laura Kessler. See you next time.
0: Thank you for listening to Talking Point, on Jewish TV Channel, the voice of Jewish communities, worldwide. We look forward to seeing you again.